0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. Today, we're going to cover the famous 19th century French surgeon, Guillaume Dupuytren. Now, most people would be familiar with the disease that bears his name, but there is so much more to the story. He was known as a, let's say, difficult character, hence the title of this episode, which was a nickname given to him by his contemporaries. Throughout his career, Dupuytren accomplished much more than just describing his contracture, In fact, he was not the first to do so, but somehow got his name attached to it. We'll get into that, as well as trace the origins and spread of this disease that has been known as the Viking's disease, the curse of the McCrimans, and the hand of benediction, among many others. So let's cut through the story and release the truth in this episode of Legends of Surgery. Let's start by focusing on the life story of Dupatrin. The second of nine children, he was born in the small village of Pierre Bouffier in the south-central part of France in 1777. His family was poor, his father an impoverished lawyer, although he came from a long line of surgeons. By the age of 12, his talents had already begun to show, and he was sent to Paris to study at the Collage de la Marche, a school run by the Jesuit order. Guillaume spent five years there. So, doing the math, that would be around the years 1789 to 1794 in Paris. Anything else of interest happening around that time? History buffs may have already guessed, but this coincided with the French Revolution, the beginning of which was marked by the Storming of the Bastille in July of 1789. Lots of great history there, but we've got a lot to cover, so let's keep moving. Young Guillaume, inspired by the spirit of the Revolution, considered a military career, but his father wanted him to follow in the footsteps of his ancestors and become a surgeon, saying, tu seras chirurgien," meaning, you will be a surgeon. And so he dutifully went off to study medicine, first in a hospital in Limoges, which he found lacking in training, then in Paris at the École de Médecine. Like many people beginning their medical training, he struggled with the dissection of cadavers and nearly dropped out. Despite this, Dupitrine was able to overcome his discomfort and eventually became prosector in charge of autopsies at the medical school in 1795 at the age of 17. One slightly disturbing story that comes from this time in his life is that, due to his desperate poverty, he would make oil for his study lamp from the fat of cadavers. Now, that poverty would be a driving force in Dupitrine's life, making him work that much harder to improve his station in life. By 1801, He was appointed Chef de Travaux Anatomique, or Head of Anatomical Work, and dissected a thousand bodies in one year, far more than his predecessor, a testimony to his incredible work ethic. During this time, he gave his own course in pathology and had a couple of assistants. One of these, René Leneck, would later become a bitter enemy, and the two would exchange accusations of plagiarism and ingratitude. A fun fact about Leneck? He is the inventor of the stethoscope. The story of his inspiration is interesting. So one day, Linek was watching children play a game with long hollow sticks in which one child would place one end of the stick up to his ear and another would scratch the opposite end with a pin. The sound would be transmitted and amplified through the stick. Inspired by this and taking advantage of his hobby of carving flutes, he developed the first stethoscope, which was initially simply a hollow wooden cylinder but was a monumental breakthrough in the history of medicine. Now, of interest, prior to Lennox's invention, doctors would put their ear directly on a patient's chest to hear the heart and lungs. Imagine that. He also provided the name of the instrument, from the Greek stethos, meaning chest, and skopos, meaning observer. One of my earliest teachers in medical school pointed out that a better name would be stethophone, as we are listening and not looking at the chest. But I digress. Back to Dupatrin. He is famously connected to the Hôtel Dieu, the ancient hospital in Paris where he spent his entire career. But how did he get the job? When the position of surgeon of the second class became available in 1802, Dupatrin and another candidate, Philibert Joseph Roux, underwent a concours, or comparative trial of ability. Here's how it went down. The candidates would take turns drawing an unknown question from an urn, and have to answer it and any other questions that branched out from there in front of the audience, which went on for two days. Dupatrin was initially unsuccessful, but had another contest with Rue in 1812 and gained the chair of operative surgery and then chief surgeon in 1814. And here's an odd twist in his relationship with Rue. Dupatrin was engaged to the daughter of the surgeon Alexis Boyer, but called off the wedding the night before it was to take place for which Boyer never forgave him. But the real twist is that Rue wound up marrying Dupatrin's (gasps) ex-fiancée. So now we have a driven man with a chip on his shoulder, it would seem, being given control over the entire surgical department at one of the most famous hospitals in the world. You can see why he earned the nickname, the Brigand of the Hotel Dieu, a title bestowed upon him by the surgeon Jacques Lisfranc. If that name rings a bell, it may be because you've heard of the Lisfranc fracture of the foot, an in injury he saw amongst the cavalrymen fighting in Napoleon's Grand Armée. Now quickly, the mechanism of injury, at least then, was a rider falling off his horse with the foot still in the stirrup. Anyways, Dupatrin made a name for himself as an excellent surgeon and teacher, but a difficult personality. The French surgeon Pierre-Francois Percy once described him thusly, "First first among surgeons, least among men, end quote. Ouch. Now, while we're here, let's continue to paint a picture of our subject. As one source put it, he tolerated no rival and no dissent, and rarely lost an opportunity to aggrandize himself. Known as the Napoleon of Surgery, and I'm not sure if that would be a compliment or insult at the time, he was typically addressed as Monsieur Le Baron, or simply Le Baron to his friends. Seriously. His face was described as having la fordure de marbre, the coldness of marble. But let's hear from some of those who knew him best. The anatomist Jean Cruvelier said this about his chief, quote, his enemies, that was the secret of his sad life. He saw them everywhere in a coalition to do him harm, infiltrating among his dearest pupils and entering his lecture hall to seize his words in order to twist them, End quote. I think you get the idea. One assistant, Jean Marjolin, recalled Dubitrin's words to him when he first reported to duty quote, You are to replace me when I'm absent or ill. I warn you, I am never absent or ill. End quote. He would tell his students to read little, see much, do much. I often find it interesting to take a look at the day in life of famous people, as it can often be quite revealing. Dubitrin would faithfully arrive at the hospital at 6 a.m., hardly missing a day in 25 years. Wearing an old green coat with socks over the top of his boots, he would round with an entourage of students, five interns and residents, and many visitors until 9 a.m. Next was an hour-long lecture, during which he would often use a patient to illustrate a point, then on to the operating room where he would work until noon, lecturing throughout the procedure before going home to see more patients. But even here, we have an eyewitness account to understand how his personality was reflected in his bedside manner. And it's not great. Here's the quote. quote. For brutality, I do not think his equal can be found. If his orders are not immediately obeyed, he makes nothing of striking his patient and abusing him harshly. A favorite practice of his is to make a handle of a man's nose, seizing him by it and pulling him down onto his knees where he remains half in sorrow, half in anger, until he is allowed to arise and describe his symptoms, end quote. I guess some of those nicknames were well-earned. However, despite all this, Dupuytren's abilities and contributions cannot be called into question. It would be boring if I simply listed all of his many contributions to surgery over his career, so we'll just cover a few of the highlights. And interestingly, most of what we know about Dupuytren's work actually comes from other writers. He was known as an excellent lecturer, but, as one article so delicately described his writing abilities, he, quote, had difficulty even composing a refusal for a dinner invitation, end quote. Fortunately, many of those lectures were recorded and compilated into his famed Lessons Orales. Over this period in his surgical career, France was quite occupied with the Napoleonic Wars, which lasted from 1803 to 1815, with the downfall of Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo, by the coalition of European forces led by the British Duke of Wellington and Prussian Field Marshal von Blücher. Like most French surgeons at the time, Dupuytren served with the military and gained quite a bit of experience with trauma, one of the few areas that he actually wrote about. And because of this knowledge, he was called on the night of February 13, 1820, to attend to the nephew of King Louis the the Duke de Berry, who had been stabbed in the left side of his chest while leaving the Paris Opera House. While Dupatrin was unable to save him, and although most sources claim he made a valiant effort at saving the duke's life, his enemies charged him with meddlesome incompetence. But the king was so grateful for the effort that he created a baroncy for Dupatrin, as well as making him an officer of the Legion of Honor and appointed him his principal surgeon. Another interesting story is how Dupatrin described Langer's lines 30 years before Austrian anatomist Karl Langer did who actually cited Dubatrin as the first to do so in his description of them. Langer's lines, as most medical students may know, are lines of skin tension on the body made by the natural orientation of the collagen fibers in the skin and are most important particularly in the creation and closure of surgical incisions to ensure a good cosmetic outcome. This came about from a case of attempted suicide by a 33-year-old man who had struck himself in the chest with an awl. Dupuytren noticed that the wounds were not round like the point of an awl, but were elliptical, as if caused by a knife. With an intern, Dupuytren went to the autopsy suite and made similar wounds in a cadaver and concluded that fiber alignment in the skin was responsible for the shape of the punctures, and noted that the pattern of these wounds varied with the site on the body. And here's another example of where Dupuytren made a discovery before the person typically credited with it did so. As you can imagine, 19th century Paris had a large number of burn patients, given the ubiquitous presence of fire in their day-to-day lives for heat, lighting, and cooking. Dupuytren was the first to classify burns according to degree of depth, something we still do today, and was the first to report gastric and intestinal ulcers in burn patients, which we now call Curling's ulcers after the British surgeon Thomas Blizzard Curling, who would describe them in a series of 10 patients in 1842, seven years after the death of Dupuytren. Now let's step back from our historical account of Dupuytren and discuss the disease that is attached to his name. Dupuytren's disease, or contracture, is a thickening and shortening of the layer of fascia underneath the skin of the palm, called simply enough the palmar fascia, or you may prefer the fancier term palmar aponeurosis. Have you ever noticed how the skin of your palm doesn't slide over the underlying muscle the way skin in other parts of your body does, or even off the back of your hand? Now, the function of the palm or fascia is essentially mechanical, giving a firm attachment to the skin of the palm to improve grip and to protect the underlying tendons. When this contracts, as in Dupuytren's disease, it causes fixed flexion, typically of the ring and little fingers, meaning they can't be straightened. This is caused by the proliferation of fibroblasts, which can form nodules or cords in the palm and even cause tenting up of the skin and leads to poor function of the hand. And while there are a number of risk factors associated with it, genetics plays a role, which we'll get into in a minute. Another name for the disease is palmar fibromatosis, which is part of a group of diseases called superficial fibromatosis. This can also involve the soles of the feet, called plantar fibromatosis, or lederhose disease, and the penis, aka Peyronie's disease. Now, speaking of lederhose disease, for some reason I assume this was a reference to lederhosen, meaning leather breeches in German. You've almost certainly seen this traditional garment in association with the Bavarian Beer Festival, Oktoberfest. The outfit was originally designed for hard physical labor, but unless you count putting away prodigious amounts of beer as hard work, I doubt anyone really uses them that way anymore. No, in fact, the name comes from the German surgeon who described the condition in 1894, Dr. George Lederhose. And here's a random fact about him. In 1876, Dr. Lederhose, along with German chemist Ernst felix Emanuel Hauptsäler, discovered glucosamine, which would eventually help launch an entire supplement industry. Just kidding. We won't get into Peyronie's disease too much in this episode, as there's lots to cover, but it was described by another French surgeon, this time Francois Guigot de la Peroni. And not unlike Dupatrin, his contributions vastly outshine the one lesion associated with his name, which he briefly described in 1743. And like so many eponymously named diseases in medicine and surgery, someone else had described it much earlier. In this case, it was actually two famous anatomists, Fallopius and Vesalius, who exchanged correspondence about a patient with the condition. But let's get back to the Palmar version of superficial fibromatosis, Dupuytren's disease. The historical evidence and theories about the origins and spread of Dupuytren's disease are fascinating and certainly reflect some important aspects of the history of Europe in particular. Because of the increased incidence of Dupuytren's in areas of northern Europe, including the Scandinavian countries, northeast England, and the north and west of Scotland, it is sometimes called the Viking disease. But well, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's start in Scotland. So the prevalence of the disease in the western isles of Scotland was so high that it led to the name, the Curse of the Macrimmons. This clan held land from the clan MacLeod of Skye and were musicians to the chieftains of this clan. They were recognized as some of the best bagpipe players around. And at the end of the 15th century, the 8th chief of MacLeod clan endowed a college of piping on Skye under the tutelage of the Macrimmons. Which lasted for 300 years, during which chieftains of the Highland clan sent their young pipers to train. A quick detour here. Most of us are familiar with bagpipes, but let's go a bit deeper on their history. While associated with Scotland, bagpipes, or at least instruments that share the same basic principles, can be found all throughout Europe as well as parts of Western Asia and even North Africa. In fact, some postulate that the origins of the bagpipes date back to as early as 400 BCE in Egypt, where the Pipers of Thebes blew on a bagpipe made from dog skin and chanters, which is the pipe with holes, where the melodies played, made from bone. Now regardless, the Highland Pipes are the most well-known, with the first mention of them in battle coming from 1549 and the Battle of Pinkie, where it was said the pipes replaced trumpets to help inspire Highlanders into battle. A number of sources made the point that the shrill, penetrating notes of the bagpipes could be heard over the din of battle and as far away as 10 miles. These instruments became so associated with the Highlands of Scotland that during the Highland Uprising of the 1700s, they were classified as instruments of war and an act of the British Parliament made the carrying of weapons such as the bagpipe and the wearing of kilts a penal offence. Fortunately, that act was repealed in 1785, And with the expansion of the British Empire, Highland regiments were formed, known as Devils in Skirts, which would have a solitary unarmed piper lead the troops into battle, which must have been quite a sight to behold. But back to the McCrimmons. Why am I telling you all this? Well, the McCrimmons were believed to have been cursed with a condition that bent the little finger, making the playing of bagpipes impossible, as this is apparently an important digit for that instrument. It has been assumed that it was Dupuytren's that was being described, but other than a relatively higher incidence among the Scottish in general, there is no hard evidence that this was the case, but fun story anyway. The question that remains unanswered would be why a clan on a remote island in the northwest of Scotland would have a higher than average incidence of Dupuytrens. For that, we need to turn to the theory of the Viking's disease. This is a relatively recent concept, typically credited one Dr. Early, in 1962, where he discussed the incidence figures available to him from 18 countries, ranging from 1884 to 1962, and suggested that the condition arose among the Nordic people, and that the variable distributions in other parts of the world could be explained by the spread of the Vikings into the British Isles and parts of continental Europe. This concept was further amplified by Dr. Houston, who gave us the nickname Vikings disease. But perhaps this is too simplified The Vikings only date back a millennium, and you would suspect that this disease existed long before that. And there is some evidence that this might be the case. Some sources think that the sign of the benediction in which the small and ring fingers are flexed is evidence of an early church leader having the disease. But others question this as the sign of the benediction predates Christianity as it was used by Roman orators prior to the Christian era. Now, some Icelandic sagas dating back to the 9th or 10th centuries include stories that certainly sound like cases of Dupatrins. Given the paucity of literature from Europe around this time, and because of the Dark Ages, it's no surprise that the origins of this disease are shrouded in mystery. Another somewhat controversial issue is the name of the disease itself. Many authors have noted that Dupatrin was far from the first to describe the condition, and wasn't even the first to describe an operation for it. So let's take a look at the medical record. Now, despite the lengthy history of the disease indirectly, as we've already covered, the first time Dupuytren's contracture is mentioned in the medical literature comes from the writings of Swiss physician Felix Plater of Basel in 1614 in the third volume of a series simply called Observations. An interesting side note, Plater is also credited with being the first to describe an intracranial tumor, in this case a meningioma. And there are a few others to cover before we even get to Dupuytren. British surgeon Henry Klein Sr. was a student of John Hunter, see Podcast 50, and at one time a prominent figure in medical circles in England in his day, although he's not that well known today. In 1777, which also happened to be the year of Dupuytren's birth, Klein first dissected a hand with Dupuytren's contracture and described the treatment by palmar fasciotomy soon thereafter, meaning to cut the fascia. And before we leave him, there is a connection to our next surgeon. Klein worked at the famous St. Thomas's Hospital in London, which, as we know from previous episodes, was very connected to Guy's Hospital, so much so that they were collectively called the United Borough Hospitals, at least for a time. Well, the senior surgeon at Guy's was named William Cooper, and this Cooper asked Klein to lodge his nephew, who had recently been appointed staff to St. Thomas's. That nephew was none other than Sir Astley Cooper, see podcast 69, who was the next to describe the condition, In 1822, writing in a chapter on dislocations of the fingers and toes in his book, A Treaty on Dislocations and Fractures of the Joints, Cooper not only described the condition, but also its treatment, but in only very specific circumstances. Interestingly, Cooper was misquoted again and again in the French literature, first by Dupitrine himself, as having made an absolute statement that the disease was incurable. In fact, it is more likely that Cooper realized that in an age before antibiotics or anesthesia, Only a very select few patients would be suitable for an operation. This is a bit surprising as the two contemporaries were known to have visited one another. One funny anecdote I came across was a sketch of their meeting with the following caption, quote, Sir Astley's fame was European, so that distinguished foreign surgeons never failed to visit him at the hospital. We read of Dupuytren going round the wards with him. When he took leave, he sainted, meaning kissed, the worthy baronet on each cheek, the manner in which Sir Astley submitted to the ceremony offered no small amusement to the pupils standing round. For any of those listening with European and perhaps specifically French relatives as I do, you will be familiar with this affectionate way of saying goodbye. All right, let's finally get to Dupatrin. While he claimed to have seen thirty or forty cases himself over twenty years of practice, it wasn't until his famous lecture of December fifth, eighteen thirty-one where he presented his findings on the contracture of the palmar fascia at the Hotel Dieu that the disease became associated with him. The lecture was reported verbatim by his assistants in a medical journal, and the article was widely reported in the Parisian medical press and made its way to the English literature, first in 1832 in the London Medical and Surgical Journal and later in the Lancet. So let's get into some details about this famous lecture. It was actually a lecture demonstration, as was popular at the time. And a 40-year-old coachman named De Marteau, the subject of the talk, was brought to the lecture theater from the adjoining St. Marth Ward. He was introduced by the statement, quote, Je ne veux parler aujourd'hui que d'un seul malade et d'un seule maladie, end quote. Yikes. I do hope my old French teachers from school were not listening to that. Anyways, that translates to... I will talk to you today of only one patient and one disease. DuBatrin presented the patient's history and the relevant clinical signs, including a demonstration of the telltale subcutaneous bands crossing the patient's palm and their exaggeration by extension of the fingers. He then proceeded to consider the cause of the conditions, ruling out associations with many of the suspected culprits of the day, including inflammatory conditions, rheumatic or gouty disorders, or trauma to the ligaments joints, or bones. Dupuytren challenged the current thought that the disease lay in the flexor tendons that lie underneath the palmar fascia, a disease process which had been given the name Crispatura tendinum, a theory of chronic thickening of the flexor tendons with loosening from their sheaths. Instead, he put forward the idea that the disease was caused by a thickening of the palmar fascia itself. Dupuytren firmly equated the disease with chronic local trauma, In this particular case, the use of a heavy-handled whip, while admitting that not all cases could be explained this way. Further, he described the clinical course of the disease and circulated amongst his students drawings of a dissection of a diseased hand, and compared it to the hand of the poor coachman, who I'm sure must have been thoroughly bored by this point in the lecture. Finally, the lecture began to come to an end with a discussion of treatments. First, Dupuytren covered approaches that had been used without success, including splinting, and then described two occasions where he witnessed the division, or cutting, of the flexor tendons. One case ended without improvement, the other with near-fatal sepsis. As mentioned earlier, Dupuytren then cited, incorrectly as we've covered, Astley Cooper's pronouncement of the disease as incurable, followed by his own thoughts on the possibilities of success with surgery. Now, Dupuytren by this point had already attempted a fasciotomy, remember that's cutting open of the fascia, on a wine merchant on June 12th of that same year, 1831, and went over the finer points of the operation, from which I will spare you. But next came the interesting part. Imagine as a medical student attending a lecture about a disease process, hear about a case in a patient standing in front of you, then watch as the lecturer performed an operation on that patient. And that is exactly what Dupuytren did, performing his fasciotomy on the right hand of Mr. De Marteau, putting his hand in a Lacroix splint, and then continuing on with the lecture. This presentation launched a vigorous debate within the French surgical community, with different authors adding to or making minor adjustments to Dupuytren's theory and making improvements in his operative technique. Different ideas about causes, heredity, anatomy, and pathophysiology of the disease were proposed, defended, critiqued, and revised to come to a deeper and more accurate understanding of the contracture. Now regardless, the spirit of curiosity and desire for knowledge certainly propelled awareness of this condition in Europe, Britain, and North America, leading to a surge in operative treatments, at the great relief to countless patients, especially with the advent of ether anesthesia in 1846. This allowed surgeons more time to perform their art and further refine the operation for Duputrins to those we know today. So let's wrap up the rest of Dupuytren's life story. Given his prodigious output of work, he was able to overcome his early poverty and in fact became quite wealthy. But his character even then would sometimes get in the way. Here's an example. One time, a duchess, a widow of a marshal of the empire, came to his office after recuperating from a successful operation he had performed on her. Dear doctor, she said, in French, I presume. I have brought you this purse, which I myself have embroidered as a slight token of my deep gratitude. The purse was obviously very light, and Dupatrin, instead of accepting it, said coldly, That is all very well. My surgery saved your life, and you owe me five thousand francs. The duchess smiled gently, and without any sign of embarrassment, opened the purse, and both slowly and ostentatiously withdrew from it five bills of a thousand francs each, which she pocketed, then closing the purse she again extended it to the surgeon saying lightly "My dear doctor you are entirely too modest this purse is still not empty it now contains the exact sum which you mentioned." Oops. <laughs> and his character certainly caused him some difficulties in his life outside of medicine. Dupin separated from his wife partly due to his involvement with the mistress of the famed French writer Honoré de Balzac. And this occurred while he unsuccessfully ran for national office from his home district after the revolution of 1830 and dethroning of King Charles X. And to pour salt into the open wound of his fragile ego, Dupuytren was defeated by a humble general practitioner. And finally, we will cover his somewhat tragic end. In November of 1833, at the age of 56, Dupuytren felt a slight paralysis on the right side of his face while lecturing students. While it is said he did not interrupt his lesson, this did lead to a six-month leave of absence, part of which he spent with his daughter and son-in-law touring Italy. But unsurprisingly, he found this sudden change of pace was not to his liking, saying, Le repos, c'est la mort. Rest, that is death. Dupitren returned and gave one excellent lecture, but that was it. His body could no longer tolerate the grueling schedule, and he rested at home, of course, recording his own symptoms of, depending on the source, either congestive heart failure and pleural effusion, which is a collection of fluid in the chest cavity, or complications of tuberculosis. The brigand of the Hotel Dieu, the Napoleon of surgery, Baron Guillaume Dupatren, passed away on February 8, 1835, at the age of 57. In his will, he left most of his wealth, estimated at 7 to eight million francs, to his daughter and only child some other money was reserved for the foundation of a chair of surgical pathology and for a museum to be established at the école de médecine the musée dupatrin was opened in 1835 and remained open with an interruption from 1837 to 1967 due to neglect up until 2016 when it was moved to a different part of the university campus of the sorbonne with the plan to reopen now while that was 4 years ago i can't seem to tell online if they've reopened One somewhat odd bit that he included in his will was funding for the establishment of a hospital or asylum for 12 old retired physicians. Given some of the animosity held for his colleagues, this kind of seems surprising, but it may have been sparked by his own experience. In the latter part of his life, Dupatrin lived in a hotel and was bothered by the noise from the street as well as other guests. One source states that there was a ball in the room over his head on the night preceding his death so it may have been a last-minute entry into his well. Despite what we've said about him, Dupuytren's students did seem to at least appreciate him, even taking the hearse from the horses at his funeral and dragging it themselves to the tomb, which is a great stone obelisk in the Père-la-Chasse Cemetery in Paris. And I'll let Dupuytren have the last word, as it seems to sum up what drove him and maybe contributed to some of the difficulties he had in his own life, but... I'll leave that judgment to you, dear listener. Quote, Nothing should be feared so much by a man as mediocrity. End quote. Okay, time to get back to our semi-regularly occurring segment, Suture Tales. Don't forget to send in suggestions. Now, I know I've been prattling on for a while now, but this one is quick and interesting, I think. This topic was sent in by a listener and is timely in two ways. It is the 50th anniversary of its development... And is something very much connected to the ICU, which is a place certainly on many people's minds these days. So what am I talking about? The pulmonary artery catheter, more commonly known as the Swan-Gans catheter. The story of its creation, as well as those of the inventors, are pretty interesting and worth hearing, I think. But before we cover that, let's do a quick bit of background. For those of you unfamiliar with it, the Swan-Gans catheter has been around since 1970, hence the 50th anniversary. It is inserted into a large vein in the body where it follows the path of blood going from the veins to return to the heart, first into the right atrium, then the right ventricle, and into the pulmonary artery, which carries venous blood back to the lungs to be reoxygenated. A balloon at the tip of the catheter is inflated, and it is then by the flow of blood pulled into a small pulmonary artery where it wedges into place. This allows for a number of measurements of pressures in the heart, which is probably too technical for this episode, but it's basically a diagnostic device used in the ICU for patients with heart failure, sepsis, and other conditions. So let's talk about its creators. Dr. Jeremy Swan was an Irish cardiologist who worked in the famous Mayo Clinic, see episode 49 of the Mayo Brothers, in the mid-50s, a time when cardiac surgery was blossoming and the Mayo Clinic was right at the heart of it, pun intended. Pun intended. From there, Dr. Swan was recruited to Cedar sinai Hospital in Los Angeles. Now let's cover Dr. William Gans. Born in what is now Slovakia, his medical studies were cut short by the Nazi invasion. And due to his Jewish heritage, Gans was sent to a labor camp in Hungary. In 1944, he was scheduled to be sent to the infamous Auschwitz concentration camp. But fortunately, a Slovak state official saved his life by warning Gans, and he was able to escape and go into hiding. Following the war, Gans returned to his medical school and graduated at the top of his class in 1947. Now, in the post-war era, Czechoslovakia came under communist rule. Gans was able to obtain a permit to take his wife and their two sons to Italy for a vacation, but in reality, they fled to Austria and from there obtained visas to move to the United States, in particular because they had relatives in Los Angeles. So, through a number of acts of serendipity, Swan and Gans wound up working together. The legend for the inspiration for the Swan Gans catheter goes like this. One lovely warm day at the Santa Monica Bay in 1967, Dr. Swan was watching the sailboats float by. He had the idea that a balloon attached to a catheter could be pulled along by the flow of blood downstream as a boat is pulled along the water by the flow of the wind. By 1970, Swan and Gans reported their experience with their catheter in a group of 100 patients and their success caused the swan gans catheter to be rapidly adopted in ICUs around the world. However, after years of use, studies started to question its utility, and there was a growing concern about complications, to the point that the use of the catheter began to decline. Now, this is not the form to argue the merits of the swan gans catheter, but, but rather to appreciate the stories behind its creation and its creators. But let me leave you with a good quote from a paper I found on the topic take a moment to reflect on it and compare its sentiments to what we've seen in the older tales from surgery that we've covered in this podcast. All right, enough preamble. Here's the quote. The story of Swan and Gans illustrate a common narrative in medicine. A promising new technique is greeted with tremendous initial enthusiasm, followed by the inevitable recognition of its limitations, and finally equilibrium. The process repeats itself with each medical advance, always with hopes of improved prevention, diagnosis, and treatment. End quote. That wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. Next time, I'm going to cover gender reassignment surgery, which is in fact a number of different types of surgeries and lies at an interesting convergence of surgery, medicine, ethics, and human rights. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download episodes and leave a comment there, or follow me on Twitter at SurgeryLegends. Like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. As always, thanks for listening.